invite you to have a seat this morning. As you do, let me introduce myself. My name is Josh McLean. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's a privilege to uh, be opening the scriptures uh, with you this morning. Before we get to that, I want to just uh, dismiss Hubtown Kids. And so if you're in the gray station or if you're in the blue station, you can head out right now. We've got the blue station heading to my left. And they're going to be hearing about John's vision, a dream of heaven. Now for the gray station, they're going to be continuing their search for the answers to the catechism questions. Today's question is this, with what attitude should we pray? With what attitude should we pray? What's the answer? With love, with perseverance, and with gratefulness. With what attitude should we pray? With love, perseverance, and gratefulness. Now, it's a tragedy when we think about how much theology we actually obtain through the songs that we sing. Especially when it comes to Christmas time, there are so many good songs out there, but there are so many other songs that are foolish, false. I'm thinking of one particular song. Here comes Santa Claus. This week I was listening to that song on the radio, hoping to become more jolly and joyous in this Christmas season. And when we got to verse 3, it says this. Here comes Santa Claus, and I'm not Gene Autry, I'll try to do my best. Here comes Santa Claus, here comes Santa Claus, right down Santa Claus Lane. He doesn't care if you're rich or poor, he loves you just the same. It's heartwarming. Santa Claus knows we're all God's children, and that makes everything right. So fill your hearts with Christmas cheer, because Santa Claus comes tonight. Many songs like this one just... Instead of bringing me to a place of joy, they just bring me to a greater place of confusion. Why does it matter what Santa Claus knows? And how will Santa Claus make everything right? Furthermore, who are God's children? Is this statement that he makes actually true? Are we all God's children? Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 3 would say otherwise. What does this passage say? And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. He's speaking to the church at Ephesus. You were following the course of this world. You were following the prince of the power of the air. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. You were following that. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. Carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind. And were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We see very clearly in Ephesians chapter 2 that there's two groups of people. And I'm sorry, Santa Claus. We're not all God's children. We see here there's the, the group that's the sons of disobedience. Who are they following after? Who are they imitating? The prince of the power of the air. None other than Satan himself, who from the beginning was a deceiver and a liar and a rebel. Searching for glory of his own. There's that group. Children of wrath, like the rest of mankind, the Apostle Paul alludes to. He's indicating that there's another group, and it's the church at Ephesus, and it's all those who are a part of the universal church, all who have placed their faith in Jesus. He's saying they're not a part of that group. 
They're not a part of the sons of disobedience. They're not children of wrath like the rest of mankind. They're different. Something has happened to them. Those who follow the course of this world, they are in fact not the sons of God, but they are sons and daughters of wrath. They are sons and daughters of disobedience. It wasn't just the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that makes this delineation. Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, he also spoke of it in John chapter 8. Speaking to a group of religious teachers, he said this. If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works that Abraham did. But you now seek to kill me. A man has told you the truth that I heard from God, and this is not... Uh, this is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. This is exactly what we see in Ephesians 1. 43, it goes on. Why do you not now understand what I say? It is because you cannot hear or bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning. And he does not stand in truth. Because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. For he is a liar and the father of lies. But, I, but because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Here Jesus is pointing out again that there are two groups of people. There are those who are the children of God, the sons of God, and there are those who are not. He's pointing out that those who thought they were sons of Abraham and thereby sons of God, that they were confused. By their actions, they were revealing that their father was none other than Satan himself. He who rebelled against God and deceived others. And so, just for fun, I'm sorry, Mr. Autry, Santa is wrong. But then who are the children of God? Maybe you're asking that question this morning. I hope that you are. Who are the true children of God? Maybe you're asking it a little bit more in a, in a more personal sense or personal way. Maybe you're asking it in, in the sense that you're saying, how can I become a child of God? I'm glad that you're asking that question. Let's turn our attention to the book of John, the gospel of John, chapter 1. This morning we're beginning a short two-week series called The Gift of Adoption. The Gift of Adoption. Today we'll be looking at this idea that in the gift of adoption we receive a new father. What an incredible statement. What a powerful statement. One that can conjure up joy in our hearts in the midst of the most dis discouraging and disappointing week. You've been adopted, Christian, by God the Father. That's incredible. What a gift. 
And next Sunday, on Christmas Day, we'll look at a, yet another gift of adoption, and that is a new family, a family full of brothers and sisters that may not look like us, may not talk like us, may not even celebrate Christmas just like you do, and yet you have a family because you've been adopted just as they have been adopted by God the Father. We see a little bit of this explanation, this idea that one can be adopted, one can become a child of God here in John chapter 1. Now, John doesn't give us a, a nativity sort of a scene. He doesn't tell us about uh, the wise men. He doesn't tell us about the gold and the frankincense and the myrrh. He doesn't tell us about the shepherds coming to the manger there. But he does give us a brief nativity of his own sense and sort. And it's there in chapter 1, verse 9 and following. Speaking prophetically, in other words, as a fulfillment of prophecy, John, the great apostle, says, The true light, which gives light to everyone, the light that was prophesied in Isaiah 9, it was coming into the world. He, speaking of the Messiah, speaking of the one who was prophesied, he was in the world. He actually came into the world. And the world was yet made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came unto his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, verse 12 says, who believed in his name, he gave them the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Let's ask God to bless the reading of his word one more time. Father, quickly we pause and we just ask that you would meet us here in this text. Father, for those of us who have received Christ, would you restore to us the joy of our salvation? That we have become the sons and daughters of the Most High. What a gift. Father, for those who are walking in darkness today, who have not yet received Christ. Father, I pray that through the power of your spirit drawing and breaking hearts, that they would see Christ Jesus lifted high today. That they would in fact receive him and that they too would inherit the right to become the children of God. We ask all these things boldly and continually in the name of Jesus. Amen. The passage is clear here. By default, no one is born a child of God. But those who receive Jesus, the message that Jesus declared, those people are given the right to be adopted into the family of God. Before we go any farther, I want to just ask you, your adoption into the family of God is depending on what you have done with Jesus. Have you received Jesus? Here we are sitting in a Christian church, a Baptist church to be specific. We are a people who for a very long time have declared the truths of Scripture. The truths that we've read and studied in Hebrews up into chapter 6. 
that God, who spoke in many ways in time past, has now spoken through his son. His son has given us a great message of salvation. That message is this, that God's wrath burns against all who have turned away from him, all who are away from him. Anyone, anyone who has sinned, God's anger is against you. His righteous wrath and judgment is upon you. And yet, at the same time, if you'll turn from your sins, and if you'll look to Jesus Christ, you will be saved. This is the message of the gospel. And to all, John says, to all who receive Jesus, who receive his message, who look to the cross and the empty grave for salvation, you have been given the right to become a child of God. You've, you'll be given a right to be adopted into the family of God. And so I want to ask you, have you received Jesus? The invitation is open for you. Would you just repent of your sins? Would you place your faith not in what you can do, not in your own righteousness, not in your own goodness, not in your own merits, not even in the name of your father or in the name of your grandfather? But would you place your faith in Jesus? And thereby be given a new name. If so, you can be adopted. Friend, you can be adopted by God. Suzanne Calhoun, defining adoption, offers this. Adoption is the divine work wherein God declares regenerated believers to be his beloved sons and daughters. And welcomes them into his eternal family. Think about that. There's not enough amens here. I don't know what's going on with you guys. Think about this. Adoption is the divine work. God is doing something. You didn't do it. You didn't earn it. Something happened to you. You were adopted. You were brought into God's family. He declared the regenerated believers to be his beloved sons and daughters. Not just sons and daughters. Not just those who have been justified, but those who have been justified and regenerate are now also invited into his family. They're given his name, and he welcomes you to his table eternally. That's adoption. It's something that God does. It's not the work of man. It's the same as conversion. It's the same as regeneration. It's the same as justification. It's the same as union with Christ. Each of these occurring at the same time in the life of a Christian, they're all works of God and accomplished by his grace, accessed through faith. The chief doctrine here is the union that the believer has with Christ. It's sort of an all-inclusive term for salvation. We are united with Christ by faith. And because we are united with Christ, the eternal Son of God, we too are given the right to become sons of God. Justification, it's the work of God declaring somebody legally righteous. God's saying, you are now righteous. Your sin has been given to my son and my son's righteousness has been given to you. I'm declaring you now justified, you're righteous. That's justification. But here in adoption, God applies the righteousness of Christ to the believer, canceling out his, ju his judgment on the believer, but it goes beyond that. Adoption is not just God declaring you legally righteous, as in justification, but he is declaring you as a member of his 
family. Sadly, justification gets all the attention. It's the favorite in the family of salvation. But adoption is so incredibly, incredibly important to the Christian life. Why? It's the means that the justified believer receives favor from God and is adopted into his family. One theologian, John Frame, he, speaking of the relationship between justification and adoption, says this. We tend to focus on justification because of the importance of that doctrine in the Reformation and on sanctification because it describes the progress of salvation in our hearts in a practical way, day by day. But adoption, belonging to God's family, is the height of our privilege as God's people and the beginning of our heavenly reward. It is the foundation of all our relationships with God and one another. God's name is our family name, the name by which we will be known through all eternity. Justification gives us a new legal standing. Adoption gives us the additional privileges of our inheritance. Adoption takes us far beyond justification. Justification is amazing and it's wonderful, but adoption is the height of existence in the here and now. As we think of this great idea of adoption, the gift of adoption here at Christmas time, we've got two sermons to accomplish what needs to be done, and there's so much work that could be done, but I want to really just think about this idea today. A new father. In the book Ben-Hur, A Tale of Christ, we see this brilliant depiction of a Roman uh, adoption. Uh, Judah Ben-Hur, he's a Jewish man. He's been falsely accused of murder, and he's been imprisoned uh, on a Roman galley ship as a, as a rower. And when the ship sinks in battle, uh, this man, Judah Ben-Hur, he escapes and he saves the life of a Roman commander, one that he had every right, at least in human understanding, to murder. This man's name was Arius. And since Arius' only son had been killed, he ultimately, this commander, he ultimately adopts Judah, pardons him for his crimes. He's given a new name. Instead of Arius as the father, he's given a name, Young Arius. Not related at all, and yet he's been adopted, or he will be. He's given all the rights of the inheritance. This is an, a great example of a Roman adoption. There's a particular scene in the Charlton Heston's movie where the adoption is announced. And there, Arius takes off his ancestral signet ring, and he gives it to his new son, young Arius, who then responds with this. I've been given a new life, a new home, a new Father. The scriptures teach you, Christian, that you also have received a new father. And today we're going to zero in on what that actually means. Christian, you have been adopted by the Father. Can't help but think of the emotions in the heart of a young child there in the orphanage as they've been notified that a family has determined that they will be adopting her. Excitement, joy, anticipation, all bound up with fear and anxiety. You see, this young lady, she's had an experience in the past. She's had a father before. One that didn't care for her well. One that didn't provide for her. One that didn't protect her one that served himself and not his child. 
And so now, as all the other children would be as excited, she is, but it's mingled with fear. What sort of father has now adopted her? Christian, I think you know the answer to, the, to that question. What sort of father have you been adopted by? But we're going to take some time this morning as we celebrate this gift of adoption, this new father. We're going to take some time to look and see what the scriptures have to say about this good father who has, in his kindness, adopted you and me. First, consider Matthew chapter 6, verse 9 and following. Jesus, the firstborn of many brethren, tells us of the Father, indicates his nature by calling us to pray in a certain way. The firstborn from the dead, Jesus, our older brother, says, hey, little sis, hey, little brother, you might want to know how to approach our father, your father and my father, as he says to Martha. I want you to pray like this. Start out by saying, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we, forgive, as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. In that, Jesus has invited us to pray to the Father Calling him our father, it indicates to us that when we approach God, we can assume that he cares for us. Right at the onset of this idea, I want to just help you, some of you. Some of us love theology. Some of us love to study the Reformation, the doctrine of justification. We consider the fact that God has in his mercy given us a provision through Christ so that we can be saved, so that our sin debt can be paid and that he then could give us the righteousness of Christ. And we think in this transactional sense that he's accomplished what needs to be done, and yes, God's a nice enough guy. In fact, he is full of mercy and kindness. But as it relates to his care for me, I'm not so sure. Some of you are wondering this morning, does God really care about me? Does God really have a sense of burden when he considers the pain that I'm going through, the difficulties that I face, the challenges that I'm uh, uh, confronted with on a weekly and daily basis, the pain that I'm experiencing even now as I sit and listen to this sermon? You may be asking, does God really care? And we can see implied clearly Stated explicitly, as we'll see in a moment, our Father, our new Father, He cares for us. Throughout our consideration this morning of our Father, many of us will have to jump over the hurdles that were left in our lives by our earthly fathers. Maybe those burdens that they've placed, those stumbling blocks are in the way because they weren't there for us. Maybe you don't even know your father. And in that way, you've not been cared for by an earthly father. And maybe when you then consider a father in any way, you think, well, I'm not so sure I would like another father. I've already had one. 
And frankly, he wasn't that good. But Jesus, who knows the Father, our older brother who knows the Father incredibly well, tells us to come to the Father, calling him our Father, and bringing to him our daily needs, asking him for literally our daily bread. Why? He's telling us that our Father cares for us. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 and 7. There we read that we are to humble ourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. What are we to do as we do that? We're to cast all of our anxieties on him. Why? Because he cares for us. He cares for us. Did you hear that? God cares for you, Christian. You would think that a God, the God, almighty, sustainer and creator of the universe, all-powerful, all-knowing, unfettered by time and space, you would think that he would not have a care in the world. And yet, in one sense, he has many cares in this world. He cares for you. The promise here is, is that if we cast our cares upon him, he will show himself to be a caring, loving father who wants what's best for us. It's worry. It's really a manifestation of pride. Think about that. Worry really involves depending on yourself in light of your personal burdens that you're facing. But here we're told that we're not to worry We're not to depend on ourselves, but we're to run to the feet of the Almighty. We're to boldly approach the throne of grace. Why? Because we can cast all of our anxieties on him because he cares for us. The level at which you pray is a good indication of how much you believe this to be true. Some of us go through life with very little prayer. Maybe this week, you're thinking as I say this, are you pouring condemnation on me? No, I'm not. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And yet, as a diagnostic tool, consider how much time you've actually spent in prayer this week. There's not a one of us that has gone through this week without some sort of anxiety or fear or being confronted by some sort of a problem. And yet, if we did not cast our cares boldly and persistently upon the throne, it reveals that we probably don't believe that this is actually a true statement. And maybe that's because you think of the Heavenly Father as maybe your earthly father. Or maybe you think yourself not needing a father at all. Brother, sister, he cares for you. You can trust God. He cares for us. Jesus promised of the Father. What did he say? In Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 11. He said, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks will be opened to them. There's a lot of things that we could draw out of those two verses. But Jesus is particularly wanting to show something, and so he expounds upon those two verses in verse 9. He says, which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? That's not a very kind 
thing to do. It's a funny joke. But in reality, if you need bread, son, you can ask the father and he'll give it to you. He'll not give you a stone. Or if you ask for a fish, will you receive a serpent from the Lord, from your father? Of course not. He goes on to say, if you then who are evil, if you who by nature are sons of disobedience, if you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? What is he, what is he saying here? What does he want us to understand? That our father actually cares for us. Is he bothered by the fact that we open or we knock on the door at nighttime? No. Is he bothered by the fact that we ask continually and persistently and that we're such a needy people? No. You say, but he's got so many other concerns or cares. Yes, his care and concern is for you. He truly, truly cares about you. Some of us, we struggle to receive that. Some of us struggle to really believe that. And the gospel says that this is true. The gospel says that as many as receive Christ, his message that he brought us from the Father on high, that you are cared for and that you have been adopted into his family. There's a dangerous and, and sad misunderstanding about our father, Christian. That he doesn't merely, that he just merely pays our tab. He puts up with, a, with us. And then maybe in some sense struggles to not despise us because of the frustrations that we've caused him. This is a false, false statement. He does not despise you. He cares for you. Think about this fact here. You who are justified have also been adopted. You have, who have been forgiven have also been brought into the family of God. And while those two things never are separate, all who are justified are adopted. All who are adopted have been justified. And yet, while they're always together, they are not dependent on one another. You say, well, he has to put up with me. He justified me. False. The one who justifies is not required to bring you into his family. I can rescue somebody out of prison this morning, but I cannot, I don't, that doesn't require that I bring them to my home for a meal. Or that I give them my robe, or that I give them my ring. Consider the prodigal son, who in many ways was dead to his father. Not of the father's wishes, but of the son's. He took his inheritance now, cut ties with the family and left. And yet, what happened when he was approached? Or when the father was approached. When the son returns, what, what takes place? His debts are not just paid. His needs are not just met. But he puts the robe on him. He puts the ring on his finger. He kills the fatted calf. He throws a party. Why? He cares for him. I'm not worthy to have your name, father. I'm not worthy to be a son. I'll be a slave. Nonsense. I care for you care for you. I hope that, Christian, that you can 
to a greater greater degree this morning recognize that God cares for you. But not only see that he cares for you, see that in his care for you, he has also provided for you. He provides for us. Look with me at Matthew chapter 6, verse 25 and following. Jesus continuing his great sermon. We've, we've dabbled in it this, this week and last already. What does it say? Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lily of the fields, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you have need of them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added unto you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Jesus is telling us that the Father who feeds the birds of the air and clothes the lilies of the field, he cares for them, but he cares for you much more. He cares for the birds. He provides for them. He'll provide for you, surely, Christian. Connected with this idea of care is the provision of God. And both of those are supported by the favor of God. Now for our tribe, we're not super fond of that word favor. It has been used and abused in a way that is unbiblical. To demonstrate to us that this idea that God, whoever God favors, he blesses with material gifts. And that's how you know God's favor is upon you. Some sort of a health and wellness prosperity gospel. If you're feeling good and if your bank account is padded, God's favor is upon you. And brother, sister, that's not true. God provides for us in many ways. He demonstrates his care for us in many, many ways. He's not a foolish and doting father. His provision is always wise. His provision is always kind. In other words, I like how one preacher put it. He said, we're not to think of God as our heavenly grandfather doting on us, showering us with gifts and candies that will only spoil our dinner. No, we're to think of him as our heavenly father, not our heavenly grandfather. Why? Because he cares for us and he provides for us. And part of what he provides for us is the third thing. He provides for us discipline. One of the benefits of your adoption, one of the things that the scriptures teach us about the one who has brought us into his family, given us his name, is that he disciplines us. Doesn't seem like the thing to do for the one that you favor, and yet that is a demonstration of his favor for us. Hebrews chapter 12, we've not got there in our study, but we will soon enough. Let's jump to that place Hebrews 12, verses 5 and following. 
And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves. He chastises every son whom he receives. It's for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as a son. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, as you are being disciplined by the Father who loves you, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. <laughs> I love this passage. You have to endure the discipline from God. Why? Because this is a sign that God loves you. My children have to know this. Why does he discipline me and not the neighbor kid? Well, the reality is I happen to have more care for those whom God has given to me in my home. And so if I've ever disciplined my children, this scripture is saying I've hopefully disciplined them for their own good, hoping to do what was best for them. And why did I do that? I did it hopefully out of love. This is what we hope is true of all of our fathers, that they would truly discipline us in the short time that they have us in their home. Why and out of what motivation? Because they love us and they want what's best for us. And so we're disciplined. If even our earthly fathers will do this feebly, how much more will God do that for us? Righteous as he is, holy as he is, will he not discipline us as it is truly for our own good and for what purpose, to what end, so that we may share in his holiness. The love of God is demonstrated towards us in discipline. Whom the Father loves, he disciplines. If you think about discipline, probably all of us have been disciplined poorly. Some of us have not been disciplined at all. Some of us have been disciplined for the wrong motives. We know the work that God the Father does for those whom he loves, that his discipline is good. And what is the purpose of discipline? Is it punishment? The scriptures teach us that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And so why does God discipline us? Is he, is he punishing us? Is he just trying to, to smash and to break and to crush and to deform? No. The point of all of God's discipline as a good father is to shape and to fashion us. To what end? So that we may perfectly imitate and image him. So that we may be holy as he is holy. And why? If we were to keep reading there in chapter 12. Because without holiness, none of us will see the Lord. And so what is the purpose of his discipline? He's discipling us. He's using our pain. He's using our difficulties. He's using these things that we face to shape us, to fashion us, to train us. 
Why? Because he loves us. Remember, adoption is not a requirement for justification. Adoption is not a requirement for regeneration. Adoption is not a requirement for union with Christ, with the Father. But his love for us, his care for us, his goodwill towards us is demonstrated in that he freely gives us adoption. He joyfully meddles with us in our weakness. He is our father. We are his sons and daughters. Adoption extends to us all the benefits that we've looked at this morning and many, many more. It's immeasurable, the love of God demonstrated through adoption. Why are we even thinking about this this morning? I love 1 John 3, 1. And we shouldn't take verses out of context, never. But I do just love this verse. And it has some verses before and it has some verses after. But 1 John 3, 1 says this. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. Just think about that. What does he want us to do this morning? 1 John 3, 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. Just stop right now and see it. In the face of all the difficulty, in the face of all the sadness, all the pain that you're experiencing, look to this right here and believe, see, consider the kind of love that God the Father has given to us that he would call us his children. That he would treat us as his children. What a wonderful thing to do at Christmas time. The main idea, if there were one today, is this. Through the gift of adoption, we have received the blessing of a new father. Church, he's a good father. He's so good to us. And he's one who is worthy of imitation. You've probably been told at some point in your life that imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. Maybe your mom or dad told you that because your little sister or brother was really getting on your nerves. Just acting like you, doing what you do, always trying to follow you around, talk like you, stand like you. Maybe you've done that to somebody else. You've imitated them in ways, maybe even subconsciously, not even knowing that you were doing it. Well, the reality is this little axiom, this proverb is true. That which we really uh, admire and respect in small ways and in big ways, we imitate them. It's one of the beautiful things that we see with a mother and a daughter or a father and a son. And it's even more beautiful when you see this in the family that's got a child or two that's been adopted. You see their nature, their biology, different than that of the mother and the father, those who have been adopted. They don't necessarily look just alike. They don't necessarily uh, uh, have the same sort of features on their face or even of their body. And yet there's still ways that you can see that this adopted child is becoming like their mother or their father. Maybe the phrases that they use, the way that they talk, purse their lips at different parts of the conversation, the way that they use their hand gestures, all of these things are flattery. They're all signs of respect. They're all signs of love. As we think of our great father, 
our Father who cares for us, as we think of our Father who provides for us, as we uh, think of our Father who disciplines us, how are we to respond to him? I think we should respond with imitation. There's many responses that we should have. There's many actions that we should have towards our Heavenly Father. But I think the chief one, if I could say so boldly, is that we are to imitate him. 1 John chapter 4, verses 18, well, actually just 19, simply says this. We love him. Why? Because he first loved us. Brother, sister, have you seen the, the kindness of God, the the care that he's given to you, the love that he's bestowed upon you? And have you not begun to emulate that and imitate that again, both to him and to his children? That's what we're called to do. It's so cute when junior acts like the senior. How much more so when we see the love of the father being imitated by the son. How about Ephesians chapter 4, verses 32 and following, into chapter 5. Scripture says, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. And on, what is the basis of this call to kindness, this call to forgiveness? What's the basis? As God in Christ forgave you. Imitate your dad. Imitate your heavenly father. In what way? Be kind to other people. He was kind to you. Be kind to others. Imitate your father. He has forgiven you. Forgive others. He goes on to say in chapter 5, be imitators of God as beloved children, as sweet little children who don't know any better other than to look at their father, to look at their mother and say, this is how I'm going to act. That's who I want to be when I grow up. We're to imitate him. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 14 and following. As obedient children, don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with imperishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in, last, in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. What's the purpose? What's being said here? You're to be holy. You're to, as an obedient child, as a beloved child, you're to look to your father and say, he's holy. I want to be holy too. You've been rescued from that name that was wicked your forefathers, it says, you were ransomed from their feudal ways. That's not your name anymore. That's not your family anymore. You don't look like them. You don't act like them. You're not to follow in that. You've been ransomed from that. You've been adopted. You've been given a new name. You've been given a new father. Imitate him. Christian, as you think about this gift that we have, it's not something that we can earn. We don't try to become holy so that we can become adopted. We are adopted. We've been brought into this family. We've been justified. We've been given new life. We've been unified with Christ. And now because of these things, as we consider our good father, we say we're going to imitate him. And we imitate him in love. We imitate him in forgiveness. We imitate him in holiness. 
Christmas has become the time of gift giving. We consider the gift that Christ has given to us. And now in celebration of that, we give each other a bunch of garbage that we'll put in the dump in like two weeks. But as you think about Christmas, think of this. What greater gift can you think of than that God Almighty would bring you into his family? That God Almighty would give you the gift of adoption. That he would lend his ear to you as a listening, caring, providing, disciplining father. That we would have such a being to imitate it all. What a gift. What a gift. You've been given the gift of adoption, Christian. If you're here today and you say, I've never placed my faith in Jesus. I've not received Jesus, as John says. What are you waiting for? Receive forgiveness. Receive grace. Turn from your sin and look to Jesus, our older brother. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this truth that we've been given a new name. Father, you're intimately acquainted with each and every one of us. You know the family that we come from. You know the name that we have, whether it be good or bad. And yet we know at the same time, regardless of how evil our father was or how good our father was, they pale in comparison to the goodness and the kindness and the holiness that emanates from you, our Heavenly Father. Father, we pray that you would help us to look beyond what we've experienced in this life. And that we would be people of faith that look to the scriptures to understand who it is that calls us children. Father, we celebrate this great gift. We've not earned it. You've given it to us freely. Not because of our righteousness or our intelligence. Surely not because of our heritage as families, but it's just your mercy and kindness, it's your good love that you've extended to us. Father, we pray that as we consider this free gift, that we would not try to earn it, but that we would try to imitate it. You said that you, by this would all men know that we are your disciples, that we are your children if we have love for you, if we have love for one another. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us to do that. We ask for forgiveness where we've failed you, where we've not looked like you, where we've not brought honor to your good name. We pray that you'd forgive us for that. Father, give us a good relationship with you. Help us to imitate you. Help us to bring glory to you as a church. Father, today as we go, we pray that you'd help us to celebrate this good gift. That you'd restore the joy of our salvation. And we ask all these things be done in the name of Jesus firstborn from the dead. Amen. Church, would you stand and celebrate what Christ